0: Well, when we started this series on Galatians, I really, I told you at the beginning, I had no idea how long it would go. Uh, we just preach until we get done, I guess. And um, I look at the number every time I put the number of the sermon at the top, and I'm amazed. We're on 17 sermons now on Galatians. We still got one more to go. So it's going to be 18 sermons on Galatians, which I was not expecting. Um, but I hope it has been profitable for us and uh, for you. As we have looked through this, this letter that Paul wrote, one of the very first letters that Paul ever wrote um, chronologically, and uh, you can see that it's different from some of his other letters just in the way that he writes and things like that. But the, the letter to the Galatians is essentially about the gospel. That's what we've been learning. And the first, if you wanted to roughly divide up Galatians just to kind of get context in your mind, the first couple of chapters, Paul is arguing for the authenticity of the gospel, his authenticity, the agreement that he has with the apostles, um, the fact that it came from God, uh, its, um, its authenticity, its credibility, its superiority, and he argued that historically, he argued it from the law, he argued it from authority, he argued it philosophically, he argued for the credibility of the gospel in many different ways. And then in the in the middle couple of, of verses, he he talked about how the gospel applies to us, how we receive the promises uh, of of Abraham, and how Christ became a curse for us, and and basically all the identity issues of the gospel, what the gospel has accomplished in us as people to change our identity, you know, culminating with that uh, amazing uh, text of that we are no longer slaves but sons, that we're set free from bondage and uh, and are not anymore slaves but apart from the household of God but we're actually adopted as sons and daughters into the household of God. And then as he moves forward with his argument of the gospel what we've been looking at lately is he's now been talking about how the gospel applies to us individually and that was chapter 5 you remember he talked about how because we're free we no longer submit to our flesh we're at war with the flesh and that we battle the things of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And then he's moved into, now, how do we live that Christian life together? So Paul has been describing in the last couple of chapters, how do you live the normal Christian life? What is What, are, what should you expect as a gospel person, and what should you expect as a gospel community? And so that sort of gives you the broad overview of the letter of Galatians that we've sort of been working through. It's just a fantastic letter. And this last week... And this week, in chapter 6, Paul's talking about that Christian life, the normal life lived together. This is this is what you should expect to see happen in your church. Christians will at times be losing that war in their flesh, and so he says if you see a brother or sister caught or trapped in their old sinful behaviors, remember in chapter 6, verse 1 last week, here's what you do. You gently restore those people through spiritual fruit. You restore them, and you lead them to restoration and to healing and to recovery. And also, when you have this gospel community and people living together, transformed by the gospel, the other thing you should see is that they're lifting each other's burdens, that they're carrying each other's burdens. That's something that you see in gospel community. You're not judging other people based on their ability to carry what God has given them, but you see people that are carrying each other's burdens and sharing in the burdens of others and and because those work both ways some days you realize you're going to be the one who's caught in sin and you will appreciate the help of another to get yourself out of it and so so this this chapter 6 of Galatians just Paul saying this is this is what gospel community looks like and this is no, this is a normal everyday life at the church there's going to be people struggling in sin and you have got to restore them there's going to be people that are being crushed under the burdens of life and it's your job to bear those burdens with them this is just what gospel community is and so now Paul goes on he says there's there's people who who know and trust the gospel, you should have a community that recognizes that. And that's how you should live. And now he's going to go on. He's going to go further now in verses 6 and 10 on his description of the church life and the and gospel community together. And he's going to continue to round out these observations of what a gospel-changed people do and how they live together. And that's Galatians 6, 6-10 that we're going to do today. And I'm, I'll just pray before we read his word. Father God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. And that you, by your Holy Spirit, have preserved the scripture that you poured into him, and out of him. And that we get to look at it today. And so, Father, I just pray that as we read these verses, that they would land on our hearts with understanding by your Holy Spirit, that we would know what it is to be a Christian and know what it is to live in gospel community together and how we are to treat one another and bear one another's burdens and to forward the mission of your gospel to the light to be light in the world, and so Father, I just pray all these things would come out of your text today, in Christ's name, Amen. So Galatians six six to ten, again, just keep it simple. Paul's just applying now the gospel message to the Christian life lived together. He says, "Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap." For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due seasons we will reap, and we, if we do not give up. And so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, like usual, Paul's Crammed a lot into a very little bit, as we've talked about before in Galatians, when you're reading Galatians, you can go to Corinthians and Romans and some other letters that he wrote later that are longer, and where he has expanded on some of these ideas, A lot of times Paul puts one thought into one sentence and then just expects us to unpack it and figure it out by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to do. So first of all, he says in this application section of his letter um, is uh, he says, "Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches." And so Paul leads out with a specific example of what gospel community life should look like together that is important and central to the church. So it's a specific example of the sowing and reaping that he's going to talk about in general in just a couple sentences later, but he starts with this specific example. He says, this is important and central to a gospel community, to a church. He says, in this community, you should find people who are being regularly taught. And they're being taught the word, they're being taught scripture, they're being taught about Jesus and salvation and redemption and healing and restoration and all of that. But Paul's Paul's point is that in this gospel community where this regular teaching is going on, that those who are being taught should be sharing all good things with the one who is teaching. First Timothy five seventeen, for instance, Paul elaborates on this. He says that effective elders or leaders, especially those that preach and teach, are worth double honor. Or you could go to First Corinthians nine nine, where again Paul expands on this and he says if if we as apostles or teachers, are sowing spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things? And, and there's other verses where Paul talks about this reality that in gospel community you have people who are teaching spiritual truths, they're teaching the word of God, and he says what you should see in that community is that people are sharing with those that teach. Now, this is an awkward verse, obviously, for me to preach on because this is not me angling for a raise, Okay. Like, we'll just take an, op- uh, an offering for me right now, right? Okay, that, that would be the wrong thing to do at this point, but awesome. Um, <laughs> but this is Paul's example of how gospel community works, right? How church works. Like, you think about why do we do church the way we do? Why does why church look like this for, like, 2,000 years? Why do we have pastors, and and uh, why do we collect offering, and why do we pay to have ministry and teaching done? It's because this is how That God has set up the gospel community, that the church community is meant to honor and to reward those who teach. And it's not about me. It's it's central and important, not because pastors need to get paid, but because the gospel needs to be proclaimed. That's the point. Paul's interest and God's interest here is that the scriptures and the gospels would continue to be faithfully proclaimed. Because as the Bible and the gospel are faithfully spoken and taught, what happens is men and women are drawn to Jesus Christ. This is how God set it up. That that his word, literally his word would go forth and people would respond to his word. And so it's important and it's central to a gospel community, to a church, that the word continues to be taught and proclaimed. And we go to that classic verse in Romans 10 right, that's so often used for missionary purposes, but it's true of the entire church. Romans ten fourteen. how are they to call on the one they have not believed in? And how are they to believe in one that they have not heard of? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? It's really that simple. It's an observational, historical fact. Jesus trains 12 disciples, and what do they do? They start preaching, starting with Peter in Jerusalem. He kicks it off, and 3,000 people come into the church from his sermon. And the church grows by the thousands. And then there's so much ministry going on in Jerusalem as the church grows by the proclamation of the word that by Acts chapter 6, the disciples are having trouble even delegating all the ministry work that has to get done. And so they get together, and they say, Literally, it's not right that we give up preaching the Word of God to wait on tables, it says in 6-2 of Acts. And so you seven guys, you manage the church ministry business and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the church just keeps growing and then Paul and Barnabas go out on missionary journeys preaching the word. They do almost nothing except teaching day in and day out in the synagogues and churches are planted all over the Middle East and down through the centuries churches are formed around one primary thing. You wonder why is church always about preaching? It's because this is how God ordained it for the church. His word would be proclaimed and it's central to a gospel community that we honor and we support the proclamation of the word because that's how the church grows. That's how people come to Christ. And so Paul here is an unapologetic advocate for protecting and supporting the preachers of God's word. It's central and primary to the health of a gospel community and faithful teachers are meant to be honored. But it's not just me, right? Or it's not just Nick or Elena or Wendy or staff people, right? Here's the reality of your life in this gospel community, in this church at Lakeside. You have many teachers pouring into your life and into your family. It's not just me. It's not just the staff. It's not just the hired guns. I imagine that just as we saw all these kids trooping off to Sunday school, you have sent kids and grandkids down to Sunday school this morning. And we saw them all go off to their classrooms. And this is what's going on there. There are faithful, mature Christian men and women who are pouring scripture and gospel truth into your kids. They're teaching them who God is. They're teaching them about the characteristics of their creator. They're teaching them biblical things. They are teaching them how to live a Christian life. They're presenting them with the gospel. They're talking about how loved they are by God and what Jesus did because of that love and that how their hearts then should respond to that love. That teaching is going on right now, not up here, but downstairs. And after this service, I'm going to get a response from a lot of you, you know, great sermon or good teaching or you talk too much or you dress funny, you know, I mean, I get it all good and bad but mostly good because you guys are encouragers and you honor biblical teaching. That's what you do, and I, and I appreciate that. And I get a paycheck, too. But those Sunday school teachers may not hear any of those comments, and they don't get a paycheck, right? But they are teaching the word of God to your kids and to your grandkids, and they don't always get the same honoring that I do and others do. And so the same goes for our leaders who are teaching your youth or your teenagers. They do an amazing job with the most distracted, hormonally challenged, awkward people on the planet, which are your teens, right? And so you make sure you honor your youth workers, right? Honor those people. You know, or those of you that are in a small group, you have small group leaders, and they put in time and effort to structure discussion times and picking out books and topics and making sure people are engaged and learning. Honor them, too. Let's be driven by the same passion here of Paul and of God for his word and for those that teach it to make sure that we don't overlook the people in our lives who are pouring in biblical teaching, who are teaching us the word on an ongoing basis and teaching our families and teaching our kids. Go ahead and honor them, is what Paul is saying. Make sure you share in the material things of this world for those that are feeding you spiritual good right? Go ahead and honor them with money. Canadians are really prudish and pridish when it comes to money, right? We feel like it's impolite to offer money to someone, and it's an insult to accept charity from anybody, right? And you know what the word charity means in original old English? It just means love. Charity means love. So go ahead and love them, right? Like, Give them some love. Buy them a gift card. You know, pay to have their driveway plowed for a winter. Buy them a boat, whatever. I don't know what tax bracket you're in, okay? (laughs) Whatever tax bracket you're in, just bless your Sunday school teachers. Bless those that are teaching your teens. Bless your small group leaders because they are pouring in the scripture into your life. And the proclamation of the word of God is central to the church. That's why Paul uses this as his first example of gospel community and doing good to one another. He says, do good to your teachers, honor them, and and, and support them. They're teachers of the word, and they deserve to reap what they sow spiritually. So then Paul then goes into this general principle of sowing and reaping. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Do not be deceived. You always got to perk up your ears when you see that, because... Paul is saying, here is something that's going on that is really easy to get deceived about. And the deception that you could possibly be deceived about is that you think you can coast and you can ride on the benefit of others, or that you can hide in the background with your um, behavior and that somehow it's not going to come back. And Paul is saying, wake up, church. Don't be deceived. Right? If you're not sowing properly you are going to reap the results of that. And so Paul's just expanding here on something that we can observe, but is also a principle, and he he roots that principle theologically in the nature of God, which Paul always does. And and this is what I mean by that. Everybody kind of observes this, right? We were talking about it a little bit before church, and somebody mentioned karma, right? You, You reap what you sow. Karma comes back and gets you in the end and all of that stuff. If you sow negativity, you, you get negativity back. And, and the world observes this. And Paul is saying, this is something that you can just see. But he says, this is just not something of the world. This is rooted in the description of God or in the reality of God's nature. The reason that you reap what you sow is because God is not mocked. The nature of God is such that his justice does not allow you, in essence, to eventually get away with it forever. And his justice, on the other hand, is such that he doesn't not reward those who deserve reward. And so the very justice nature of God and that that justice will not be mocked is what Paul roots this observational reality of sort of the universe in. He says, yeah, you're going to notice this. You're going to notice that if you sow discord, you reap discord. And if you sow good things, you'll get good things back. And he says, that's not just something that's random. That's because God is just and his justice plays out in his creation. It doesn't always play out in the timing that you expect or in the way that you expect, but he says, do not be deceived. Make no mistake. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow in the end. And so Paul says, yeah, that principle is rooted in God's own nature because God's not going to be mocked. And it would be a mockery of God's justice if it didn't work that way. And so we think that you know, We can think others are getting away with being jerks and they're not getting rewarded for it, or we can think that we can be the jerk and it won't come back and bite us, but Paul says it will because this principle is rooted in who God is. And if you wanted to, you could go back sometime and read Psalm 73. The writer of Psalm 73 says, "'My foot almost slipped.'" I nearly stumbled, he says, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're not in trouble. They're not in pain. Why are these wicked people prospering, the psalmist writes. And he keeps going on this, not understanding why they're not reaping what they're sowing until he gets to verse 17. And then he says, then I went into your sanctuary and I saw how they end. They are destroyed and swept away in terror when you roused yourself, Lord. So, the psalmist sees the same thing. He's like, Why do these wicked people prosper? And I do good and I don't get anything. But then I went into your sanctuary, you know, like where the Word of God is, and I looked into the Word of God and I heard the Word of God and I realized what their end is and their end is destruction because God's not going to be mocked. The wicked will pay eventually and the good will be rewarded. And so, you will eventually reap what you sow. And so in the gospel community, Paul is talking to this gospel group of people and he's saying so good into the people that teach, he uses that as a specific example, but then he says just in general, in verse 8 he goes into the general principle, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So he says, so let's examine this principle for a moment. Right, Paul's trying to be practical and helpful here, so he's saying this is what you should see happening, or or be aware, gospel community, how you're relationally interacting with each other. You know, this picture of sowing and reaping, we want to dig into it a little bit. We don't want to overlook that it's one of growth. Right, when you sow, what do you sow? You sow a little seed. And when you reap, what do you reap? A whole plant, right? And so this agricultural picture this this farming picture that Paul uses is one of seeds and plants it's it's one of growth and believe it or not, I actually grew up on a farm. I grew up as a farmer and uh, and there, and I know I'm a long way from there now but but uh, but i I grew up you know cultivating and disking and plowing and planting and fertilizing and all that stuff and the reality of this illustration of seeds and reaping is that you plant a bushel of grain and you reap a hundred bushels of grain, right? That's how farmers make money. You, you plant a bushel, you reap somewhere between 60 and 100, you keep one for next year so you can plant again, and then you sell the others, right? It's a good deal. And that's the principle that Paul has here. He holds out that whatever you sow, whatever you plant, you are going to reap much more of later. And so we can ask ourselves, what is it that we're sowing? And Paul gives examples here in the flesh, you might sow a little tiny seed of a lie, you know, just little white lies, things that make your day go easier, but as you sow those little tiny seeds of lies, Paul says you're going to reap dishonesty in the end. You're fundamentally going to become a dishonest person. You may not even tell the truth to yourself after a while. You may lie to yourself about things, right? Day by day, week by week, those little seeds of lies eventually show themselves in your character as dishonest. And you become a dishonest person. Or we might plant little seeds of selfishness, right? Oh, I'll just take advantage of this, or I'll just cheat a little here for my benefit. And and I know I'm taking advantage of others, but I need it. You know, this the classic, you know, the classic commercial of the world. You deserve it. You know, you deserve this today. You know, I'll just I'll just take this day off. I'm not sick, but I'll call in sick. You know? Or I'll just, you know, the government takes too many taxes anyway, so I'll just you know, I'll keep a little for myself because now I can get a flat screen TV, right? And you do these little seeds of selfishness and you plant these things and eventually they grow up to be jealousy and envy and strife because you want what other people have and you can't get it and not everything goes your way every day. And you just end up jealous and envious. Or we plant these little seeds of hurtful words, right? We think it's fun to put others down and get a laugh or we notice that we can win an argument or feel superior when we belittle our spouse or shock people with anger or foul language. And as you plant those little seeds, they grow up, and you eventually reap discord, you reap unhappiness, and you can't control your mouth anymore, and you can't control your temper, and you're constantly negative and complaining, and you ultimately grow from that little seed up into somebody who doesn't even know how to be gentle and humble anymore. And Paul says, be careful what you sow, because you will eventually reap it. And worst of all, Paul says with the psalmist saw, when you sow to the flesh, you finally reap corruption. You reap death. The corruption of ruined relationships and identity, but you also reap the final corruption of death and isolation from God. And you say, wait a minute, Paul, where would you get that from? When it says corruption. Where did, you get, where did you get hell and isolation from God and death out of that? Because if you look how he finishes his example, he compares corruption when you're sowing to the flesh with what when you're sowing to the spirit? eternal life. And so the opposite of corruption to Paul is eternal life. And so then, let's look at the positive ones. I started with the negative ones because they're the downer. But let's look at the positive ones. Let's look at the Spirit. Paul says, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. So in this gospel community in the church, let's consider how the same premise applies to sowing to the Spirit, how planting small seeds to see future rewards. And this is the right way to view the Christian life. I think a lot of us, we get this idea sometimes, or we certainly had this idea when when we were younger in the faith, right? The first few months or the first year or two that we were believers, especially those that remember when we came to Christ, we think we're going to hear that one sermon or we're going to read that one book of the Bible or we're going to get that one truth and our life is going to be transformed overnight and we're just automatically going to be like on this plateau as Christians and everything's going to be fixed instantly. But Paul's saying that's not the normal Christian life, right? He described the normal Christian life before in chapter 5, how we're at war with the flesh and we do battle with the fruit of the Spirit. And he said there's going to be people in our midst who stumble and they're trapped in sin and we need to restore them. And we're going to be bearing burdens that crush us and we need to lift them up. And this applies here to sowing and reaping. Is the reality of the Christian life is we plant seeds and the Holy Spirit grows those seeds up and we grow and we mature in our sanctification. But those things change over time as we plant the proper crop. So the good news is if you start sowing small seeds, you sow small but you reap big. And so I want to encourage you today to start sowing small spiritually. Just sow small, small spiritual seeds and see what grows. And this is what I mean. You could start with something like prayer, and you think, oh, yeah, those great prayer warriors, right? They get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and they pray for two hours. And, you know, it's 7 o'clock in the morning when they're making breakfast, and they've already got two hours of prayer under their belt. And you think, I- I'm going to do that. I'm going to be that guy that gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning and prays for two hours. I tell you what will happen. You will wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You will pray for 25 minutes, and then you will wake up an hour and a half later. Because you will have fallen asleep, Okay. And then you never do that again, right? I'm not getting up at 5 a.m. And then you feel crushed because you feel like I can't be that person. They talk about praying at church and I can't pray. I can't do it. I don't have the discipline. I'm telling you, like, don't try to pray two hours a day. Just pray 15 minutes. Just plant the seed of prayer that says, whenever I wake up, doesn't matter when, I'm just going to pause and pray for 15 minutes. And that's it. And if you prayed for 15 minutes every day, you would pray for over 90 hours in a year. You'd have 90 hours of prayer done just in that 15 minutes. Not counting the prayer you do here or the prayer that you do in a small group or the prayer that you do when the guy cuts you off in traffic. You know, not counting any of that prayer. Just 15 minutes a day, you plant that little seed and you get over 90 hours a year of prayer. Just start small and then see what happens. Because what will happen is as you pray for 15 minutes or 10 minutes or 5 minutes, if you remember what you prayed for, you'll start to see God work in your life and then you'll start to pray more because that prayer worked and it'll grow from 15 minutes until you are, like Paul says, pray constantly. You're in constant communication with God. But you could think about something else. You could plant a seed of Bible reading. Same thing, right? Everybody starts their Bible reading plan in January, and you are determined to knock off seven chapters a day. You're going to do four Old Testament, two New Testament, and a Psalm, or something like that, every day. And that lasts about three weeks, maybe, right? And you're walking around quoting Leviticus in February, and then you're not quoting anything in May, because you're done, right? You just gave that up. But again, let's just say you spend five minutes reading just one verse, Just one sentence and just plant that one seed in every day. It takes five minutes to read and think about one verse. You could say Psalm 3, 5. I lay down and slept and woke again because the Lord sustained me. That's it. That's your whole, that's your Bible reading for the day. But then you just think about that. You meditate on that through the day. Right, I don't know how I stay alive, why my body keeps going. I don't know what's happening when I'm asleep, but every morning I wake up again. God has got me. He sustains me. He has my future. What are the implications of this in my life? First of all, that God is even aware of me, that he knows me when I'm sleeping, that he knows I exist, and he's paying attention to me, and he's sustaining me. He has my sustenance in his mind. It's one verse, one sentence, and if you just dwelt on that, you would have 365 of those in a year. You'd have 365 encounters with the word of God in a year if you just read one sentence every day. And those seeds will grow up. Think of the fruit that that would bear in your life spiritually if you just meditated on God's word one sentence a day. And then maybe you want to read seven chapters sometime, you know, or a whole book. You know, or we could talk about reading, about expanding our knowledge of God and and what his servants teach, right? So many people say that they can't read. I don't have time to read, especially guys, I get this all the time, trying to start a men's Bible study, right? You give them a 14-page book and they can't get through it, you know, because I'm not a reader, man, I don't read, right? Okay, listen, books look scary, but if you read at a grade four level of 250 words a minute and you read only 15 minutes a day, okay, the math adds up. 15 minutes at 250 words a day for a year is 1.3 million words a year in 15 minutes a day. Okay, now most books have about 350 words on a page and there are about 200 pages. That's 70,000 words. You think, I can't read 70,000 words. Listen, you divide that into 1.3 million, you can read 20 books a year with 15 minutes a day. Okay, guys, so the next time we start a Bible study, I don't want to hear that you're not a reader. I don't want to hear it. How many of you guys have read 20 books in the last year? How many of you have read 20 in your life? (laughs) Okay, the point here, I don't want to belabor it, but the point here is Paul is just saying, look, you just sow small seeds. You could be reading Piper, you could be reading Keller, you could be reading K. Arthur, you could be reading, you know, so many people that are out there with solid teaching. You know, you could be reading Jonathan Edwards, you could be reading C.S. Lewis, you could be reading just giants of the faith, 20 of them a year with just 15 minutes. And if you sow those tiny little seeds, at this point in my calculations, we're up to literally like 35 minutes. This is one sitcom out of your life to sow into the spiritual things that God wants in his community of people to raise up a crop of faithful spiritual fruit. You know, or you could look at giving, same thing. People look at their income and they say, I can't tithe 10%. How can people tithe 10%? How can I give that? Okay, fine, don't tithe. If you can't do that, don't tithe. Give whatever you can. Plant a seed of giving faithfully and give what you can. And if you give nothing, then trust God for $10 today or $20 or sacrifice a few coffees and plant a seed and see what that grows into, into the kingdom of God so that we can support people like this in the Philippines so that we can see churches planted around the world, so that we can see the Pregnancy Care Center supported, so that we can run VBS, so that we can do the things in this community to see the word of God proclaimed. Paul's not saying, you know, plant a tree. He's saying plant a seed and see what grows up out of it. Plant seeds of mercy and plant seeds of encouragement towards others. Just a phone call or having a coffee for 20 minutes with somebody. You know, just a... Just a 30-minute Sunday school lesson or one Friday a month to help out with youth. There are lots of ways that you can plant these seeds. And that's what Paul goes into next. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due seasons we will reap if we do not give up. And so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. And I want to focus on that opportunity. Paul says, do good to everyone, and and as you have opportunity, some seeds that you can plant, some spiritual seeds that you can plant, it's to lead a small group. It's to come and help out with maintenance or painting the church. It's to teach a Sunday school class once a month. you know, It's to help out with youth twice a year. It's There are so many ministry seeds that you can plant that are very tiny. You don't have to take on the whole world. You don't have to lead the biggest ministry. You just have to plant a tiny seed. And Paul says that will grow up. And he says, where are we planting these seeds? Where are we doing this good? Where are we expecting to reap? He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. Because again, Paul's talking about the gospel community. And so he says, yeah, do good to everybody and don't grow weary of doing good. Keep relentlessly doing good to everybody, but especially take care of your brothers and sisters in the church. I've had situations in the past where I've, you know, as a pastor, when I was back in Guelph, there were situations where I was making decisions about what we were doing in ministry and stuff like that. And there were situations that came up, two or three that I can think of right now, I won't give any specifics, but where basically some members of the church were treated very well. They were long-standing members and they'd been faithful volunteers and they needed something or or there was a question about who had priority or if an exception could be made to a rule or whatever. And, And in every case, we gave priority to the member of the church, and we were accused i was accused two or three times of showing preferential treatment to a church member over somebody else and my answer was yes i am giving them preferential treatment because these are people who are members of our church and they're faithful long-time serving members of our church too and so you know what they do get honored They do get the exception to the rule. They do get the preferential treatment. That is the benefit of being part of the gospel community of God. It's part of the benefit of being in God's family is that you get the preferential treatment of God and his family. That's why you want to be in God's family. God intended there to be a helpful, encouraging benefit to being part of the church. And so when there's a choice that has to be made between doing good somewhere else and doing good to the household of faith, do it to the household of faith. Paul's very clear here. He says, especially do the good to those who are part of the family. They get good done to them differently than others. And that horrifies some people, right? It it shatters the mind of our militantly politically correct culture that just believes that everybody has to be treated exactly the same, right? That lives and dies on fairness. It even offends some Christians who think that everyone should be treated exactly the same or that everyone gets treated worse for the benefit of the unbelievers, right? That's the way I grew up. Right? is that all the Christians get treated worse and we do everything for the people outside there to the world because the unbelievers are the most important. You know what? It is frightfully hard to find Paul praying for unbelievers in the New Testament. It's hard to find Jesus praying for unbelievers in the New Testament. And that's not to say that we don't pray for unbelievers and we're not, our mission is not to go to the world and all of that stuff. But Paul says... This seed planting, this reaping what you're sowing, this doing good, it is primarily to the household of faith. Make sure you are taking care of your brothers and sisters. And of course do good to everyone. But we have to be known for our love for one another. We have to be known by what we're sowing into each other, for the care and compassion that we treat each other with. That we do do good to everyone, but that we especially honor and do good to our brothers and sisters. That's the gospel community that Paul's exhorting in Galatians. And so there's a lot of application for us here to consider today, but primarily keep in mind that Paul is trying to be helpful to us here, okay? Paul, in in chapter 6 of Galatians, is describing for us the kind of community that we should expect to see from a gospel-saturated and a spirit-filled people. And his description of that community, his description of that gospel-saturated and spirit-filled people is that they restore one another when they find each other sinning, that they bear one another's burdens, that they don't sow into the flesh, but they sow into the spirit. They just sow tiny seeds into the flesh and they reap the results and that they spend their time honoring and doing good to one another and that by that, the gospel is proclaimed and that as they sow into the spirit and they do good for one another and they are kind and they are generous and they are joyful and they are gentle, that kind of gospel community, that kind of spirit-filled church is the kind of church that Paul knows can reach the world. Because people will see that, and they will fall in love with it, and they will wonder, why are those people like that? And then you'll have the opportunity to share with them the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, again, for this letter that you have written for us, that we would know what it means to understand your nature of justice and love, that we would know what it means to be a gospel community, to be a a spirit-filled church, that we would understand these very simple, quick principles that Paul Paul is laying out for us here, that we will reap what we sow, and that if we just sow in a little bit, we just sow small spiritual seeds, there can be a tremendous harvest in our life and in this church. And so, Father, I pray that we would take this encouragement away. That in whatever area of our life that we're not sowing, that we would start to sow. Whether it's in Bible reading, or ministry service, or giving, or prayer, or teaching, or whatever, or just generosity, or mercy. That we would sow the tiniest seeds and trust in you to see them grow. And that, Father, by this we would be a gospel community that that shares your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.